my pillow, my shirt, my house, my supper, my tooth, my money, my kite, my job, my bagel, my spatula, my blanket, my arm, my painting, my fountain pen, my desk, my room, my turn, my book, my hopelessness, my wallet, my print, my sock, my toe, my stamp, my introduction, my luggage, my plan, my mistake, my monkey, my friend, my penis, my anger, my expectation, my pencil, my pain, my poster, my fear, my luggage, my eyes, my raiment, my wash, my opinion, my fat, my sleeplessness, my love, my basket, my lunch, my game, my box, my drawer, my cup, my longing, my blotter, my distraction, my underpants, my papers, my wish, my despair, my erasure, my plantation, my candy, my thoughtfulness, my forbearance, my, my sky, gracelessness, my rainbow, my, my courage, my, my mask, crying, my reflection, my hat, my blessing, my pocket, my light, my, my dirt, time, my epoxy, my body, my drum, my hammer, my sex, my grease, my sand, my scarf, my story, my top, my solidarity, my, past, my, my mark, hope, my depth, my, my spelling, pardon, my silence, my, smile, my speech, my, my selfishness, gaze, my, my hunger, my allowance, my, quilt, my letter, my massage, my derision, my epic, my space, my land, my plentitude, my perversity, my poverty, my transgression, my exultation, my lack, my luster, my beatitude, my remission, my incantation, my white, my pulse, my creation, my grace, my object, my sum, my contumely. I have a line in one of my uh, works, which is uh, that we go from amniotic fluid to semiotic fluidlessness. So this is really kind of anti-Julia Kristeva. She has this idea of the Cora or this kind of the pre-symbolic, which um, uh, very much against. Now, I'm not a developmental linguist or a uh, psychoanalyst, so my uh, objection to it is actually very rhetorical and ideological, but I think that there is no moment that's not textual. I think the minute you are in the world, you're in a world that's uh, immersed in verbal language, and uh, so uh, I can't really remember my first textual experience. That would be one a answer to it. I can't, can't remember ever not having a textual experience. And now I, I'd say something like that sort of just as a, you know, a remark because it fits into my idea of verbal language and the pervasiveness of verbal language and pushes against a common idea that 
you can somehow that there's something outside language or that you can make language transparent. Uh, but I've realized now that there is something probably odd about me uh, and compared to many odd things about me compared to most of the people, but you know, you don't really realize some, some things, you, you know, what's, what's odd about you, but some things you're not, I'm, I'm, I was, I'm not as aware of that other people don't experience in the same way. And that is that I've always remember like a verbal stream going on in my head as I'm walking down the street uh, and uh, echoes and whenever I would see a sign uh, now or as long as I can remember, I would do it in the opposite direction. I'd change each word. Uh, it would bounce around in my mind. Some other uh, jingle would occur to me, some phrase. Uh, so I have like a continuous verbal stream that really uh, n never never stops. And uh, it's often a kind of echo and mul multiplex. So I think to some degree... Everyone experiences that, but for me, it's a more palpable thing. So I'm not like trying to experience that. That's just the nature of it. Plus, I have a um, a kind of dyslexia. I didn't used to call it a dyslexia because I thought of dyslexia as a particular kind of reading disorder that prevented uh, kids from uh, reading uh, immediately because they inverted the letters that they read. I have something like that. My brother has that. And, um, you know, that's a really, especially when the time we grew up in the 50s, it wasn't recognized, so you were considered to be stupid. So it's a very um, important experience where verbal physicality, being stumbling on words, is um, creates a lot of problems for you. You're separated out and so on. I had that to, to some extent, not to the degree that my brother Edward... Uh, had it. Um, but I have discovered over the years that um, that I have spatial dyslexia as opposed to taking it as a natural condition. But I almost always go in the wrong direction. If I don't, um, if left to my own devices, I'll always go left for right. Um, and it's not even that I do it wrong half the time. I actually always go the wrong way because it's, you're convinced that it's, it's, it's the right way. But it's 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 reverse. So this reversal is is a fundamental part of my textual experience and and, and what I write about. And certainly, other people have that, but but I have it. Um, um, you know, it, it, I've I've had it for as 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 long as I remember. Uh, another aspect, as this relates to poetry or to writing, is that. Um, when I type, I often invert letters. So especially a manual typewriter, um, they've just published this collection of letters that you read, and the editors asked, should I should the, leave my misspellings in? And I said, absolutely, but just put in brackets what the correction is. And there's a number of reasons why I like to have those misspellings, but uh, it's really just P-E-R-H-A-P-S would be P-E-R. A-H-P-S, just inverting letters in the middle of things. And I wrote a, a poem called Defense of Poetry, which was all made up of not made-up words, but these kinds of, 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 uh, of errors of inversion. But the many people who do really identify with it. So this is an example of a formal feature that even has a political issue because people see it and they say, oh, I, I do that, and actually it's taking the sound value. It's also recognizing 
that as, as something that happens as the way you interact with language and that this is published and it, it's recognized is uh, empowering uh, to, to people who experience it and who recognize that they say, oh yeah, I know what that, I do that too. So I like that kind of identification it isn't always just about uh, narrative experience or identity and so on. It's also about linguistic uh, experience which doesn't have to do with uh, or cognitive uh, uh, styles um, or deformations that don't really have to do with tr traditional ways that we divide people up or uh, un understand. And then also, you know, there's a pleasure. Now, I don't like to go left when I mean to go right if I'm on the highway or looking for something. Uh, so it's always unpleasant when that happens. But um, in poetry, it's a space that's uh, utopian in a sense. Um, literal meaning of utopias out of that practical necessity. And so there is a pleasure in it. And uh, there's a pleasure in the misspellings and respelling. Even the idea of miss is a problem um, as if it's bad and you have to correct it and, or you're stupid if you don't get it right and so on. I mean, the stupid issue is very important to me and always in my work because um, uh, I'm really, you know, pushing back against this idea of what, what, what the correctness and is, is the... Uh, is the fountain of uh, of intelligence as opposed to intelligence being and reason being the font of intelligence. Correctness is a particular kind of standardization and uniformity. It also has to do with correct accents. Uh, so that uh, so I'm interested in pushing back against correctness and normalcy and the normal. Uh, and, and in in ways both that come from my own experience and then e extending it forward, but the play with reversal and puns and what I now call echo-poetics, E-C-H-O, is pervasive. It isn't something I try to do. If I see a, a, a saying or, or almost any linguistic string, I almost always see it also in the reverse and backward and see several different rhyme associations with, with each word. I'm not like trying to do that to write a poem. I'm also going to try not, not to do it. It's just it's, it's the way in which I experience uh, verbal language. So this is what I mean by a long answer to the question, what was your first textual experience? My answer is none. I've never had a textual experience. I live in pure reality, and I've, after years of fasting and meditation, freed myself from verbal language, and I just experience uh, the blank, the nothingness of the world, not concerned with politics, nationalism, ethnicity, capitalism, because all of that is just the peripheral effects of verbal language. I am with the cosmos, one, just my consciousness and the cosmos merging kind of like a shooting star in the sky. So two answers. So. My resentment, my future, my understanding, my apricots, my holiday, my umbrella, my favorite, my mood, my side, my seat, my figment. Charles Bernstein contour, is a poet, sky, essayist, editor, and professor emeritus at the University of Pennsylvania. Together with Bruce Andrews, he edited the magazine Language, which gave its name to a movement of more than a hundred poets interested in the radical exploration of writing that flourished in the late 1970s and 80s on both the East and West Coasts of the United States. Since then, Charles Bernstein has participated in the invention of all kinds of devices for thinking about poetry and its distribution. Accessible and rigorous, 
They include Penn Sound Archive, the Poetics Email List, and the bilingual Spanish-English journal SN New World's Poetics. Bernstein's essays reflect his commitment to the validity and the relevance of poetry for the production of thought by other means and as a way of participating in the conversations of the present. In this podcast, we hear Charles Bernstein think aloud about the performativity of poetry and the multiplicity of voice, elaborating on questions such as the sound of writing, presence and absence, orality, orality, and aorality. Along the way, Bernstein recounts his first textual experience and acknowledges the influence of Arto, Bob Wilson, and the living theater in shaping him as a poet. We also revisit early discussions of the language constellation, their policy of exchanging poems and essays by setting up horizontal cultural mechanisms, and a collaborative effort to reread poets from the past decades in order to write an alternative, non-hegemonic history of American poetry, from Jackson McLow, Hannah Wiener, and Larry Eigner, to Louis Zukowski, Charles Resnikoff, and Gertrude Stein as the most genuine representative of modernism. This joyride through time and listening ends with a new reading of the 1981 text, Three or Four Things I Know About Him, which we recorded at the end of a marathon session of more than three hours. My rocking chair, my sisters, my demands, my gumdrops, my word. I, I, I like which linguistic environments contain me. You said I don't have to repeat the question, but I kind of liked I like the expression linguistic environments contain me. Well, I, I, I would say everyone I ever met <laughs> contains me, and I can't get out of them, and I'm more and more. So the way isn't to, 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 to be free of the linguistic environments that contain you, but rather to just accept them the way you accept the hot, humid weather in, uh, in Madrid or in uh, New York. Um, you can't really, you could air condition, but that would be to lose the thickness uh, of it. But I grew up in specific kinds of uh, linguistic environments and histories, which I be more aware of now than I, I used to be. In specific, um, with David Anton, what we would share is the kind of Jewish, Yiddish background, but he's a generation older than me and would have known, he knew Yiddish and, and would have spoken some Yiddish in his house, whereas in my case, the Yiddish was entirely gone, and that interests me. It was gone to such a degree that I didn't really think about it that much until the last, you know, couple of decades, which may sound like a long time, but still, I was, you know, middle-aged before I thought. I, I knew about it, but I just really didn't give it as much thought. So it's something that preoccupies me more now. I think also with the way in which people talk about identity and uh, uh, ethnicity in poetry and in art, one effect of that is to think about, you know, how how that works for me as opposed to other people or a relationship to it. So all my grandparents, all four of them, uh, would have spoken Yiddish. All four of them w would have emigrated from or been um, lived in the pale of settlement. Poland is the adequate metaphor for that, but they weren't in Poland itself, but probably in uh, the Ukraine or uh, Belarus, 
though Spinoza, of course, for me, is such a crucial figure, and that relates to this as well, and the kind of diasporic aspect. So, you know, or Jabez would say, you know, that uh, one is only at home in exile, that, that, that verbal language is itself a kind of exile. And uh, I've always uh, found that not so much interesting, uh, or even that I agree with it, but I ex experience that. Um, my parents were both born in, in, in New York City. Uh, my, my father around 1902, my mother who just died in the last year, was born in 1921, she lived to 97. And, and they were both um, absolutely English only. And by the time that I was born in 1950, they, I mean, my mother would say, but it can't really be true. My mother didn't always say things that were true in that sense. But it, she, she would say she never heard any Yiddish. So my father obviously grew up in a Yiddish household on every side, but it was absolutely no, zero interest in it or even any interest in talking about where his parents came from. So they were really, um, you know, focused on being American and um, embraced uh, America. And America gave... Um, gave them a, a, a chance um, and, uh, and as a result uh, allowed for stuff for me, which, which um, split me from my parents to an enormous extent, but it was because of things that they couldn't have had for themselves. I mean, neither of my parents went to beyond high school. If my father graduated from high school, it's unlikely, but my mother did. Um, I didn't even know there was a category when I went to a very elite school, Harvard College, um, and a wonderful high school, Bronx Science, which is a public school that you had to take a test to get into. Um, I didn't know there was a category really until, <laughs> I don't know, I was so first generation going to college that I wasn't even aware that it was a, a category. Nobody even explained what that was. And uh, it, 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 it made for problems when I entered into the uh, linguistic environment of Harvard University, which was repellent to me. And uh, uh, offensive and arrogant, and I didn't really understand what was going on because I grew up in this world of a lot of people like David Anton and the children of David Anton and uh, in New York City and Bronx Science, and then Harvard was this sort of wasp, uh, snobbish thing for someone like me. And I didn't even know that existed. I never experienced that before uh, since then. 50 years, I had a lot of chance to think, think about it. But uh, that was, in fact, 1968. So that was the, the time of, um, of strikes. And uh, indeed, I was involved in the strike at, at, at my college the first year and in the end of high school against the war in Vietnam. But it wasn't just against the war in Vietnam. Um, that whole counterculture of the late 60s was very important to me. Um, so over time, I began to see how this kind of... Um, repressed Yiddish was an interesting thing because the state of Israel has um, really banned and actually been hostile to Yiddish. Israel, to some degree, has been more friendly to other languages than they have been to Yiddish uh, because they wanted to establish Hebrew. You know, nobody spoke Hebrew, and certainly not the diasporic Jews. Um, they, they recited it in synagogue. They might have been able to read it, depending on how educated they were, but people didn't speak Hebrew. Um, and in, the United, in New York, it was a huge Yiddishkeit socialist. And they're socialists not in the nominal sense, whatever that was. These were real real socialists, communists, um, uh, labor bund people, um, 
doing theater and all the rest. And that, that's a culture that's completely gone. And uh, so I, I just realized, maybe when I was writing the opera about Walter Benjamin, too, which is another thing that I didn't think as much about until I wrote that, you know, who, wh- who would be the descendants of the secular, radical, um, innovative artists of that? And of course, <laughs> I realized that, that that was an important part. I mean, I love uh, Walt Whitman just like Lorca, but um, that's only part of what my, my past is. Uh, so the linguistic environment for me is something that's made. It's not something that's received, and it's something that I want to emphasize is artificial, uh, syncretic, uh, and to mess up with that. And I think it's this aspect that most upsets people because you're sort of messing with their 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 sense of the natural and that that that's upsetting to people on the cultural uh, left as well as the actual right so it's um it remains something that's very uh uh d- disturbing but but I think it has to do with Jewishness too of course a lot of Jewishness is is very um I mean it, it, Jewishness by and large religious Jewish uh life and so on doesn't really partake of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Spinoza and Marx, the so-called non-Jewish Jews, that be, because the issue of appropriation has become so powerful. So people say, well, you shouldn't appropriate. People have their own language, their own language environments, their own customs, their own... Whereas in some fundamental and um, even absolute sense, um, the Jewish culture I'm talking about has no origin. It always picks up from where it is. So it's like we're, we're all uh, we're all Moranos, you know, <laughs> or conversos. Uh, uh, that is to say, speaking in in the language that's uh, allowed and that's the given. But there is no inside. There's only the converso. When you're a converso, you have no no interior. You just have a constant dialectic um, weaving. When I was a kid, you know, it's a little early to talk about this kind of stuff. I mean, or, you know, not so interesting to talk about stuff that I did when I was, in, uh, you know, a, a teenager. But I went to a lot of theater in New York, a lot of theater and, and, and music. Um, and so I saw a lot of Beckett and Pinter, and when the, which on Broadway and off Broadway. Mind-blowing experience of seeing Dutchman by uh, Amir Baraka, then known as Leroy Jones. That was great. Uh, and uh, really transformative. Um, so I was really going to more theater at that time, but more not, not to some degree mainstream. But it was kind of serious, you know, serious plays, um, and you know, actually for that matter, Shaw and a lot of other Shakespeare, a lot of uh, repertory stuff. So the and then I read Grotowski toward a poor theater, which relates to what I'm talking about, but. I really liked Grotowski, uh, but it relates here to the idea within poetry of uh, stripping away uh, the lights and the and the costumes, so you could have a different kind of encounter with the with the audience, and uh, of course all the ensemble work uh, that went in, involved. And I, I think uh, what I liked about toward, toward a Poor Theater was that it, it was a little bit like a 
a manifesto in poetry toward free verse, not in the sense that free verse is non-metrical poetry, but deliberate verse, so that verse was caught up in highly rhetorical patterns uh, that prevented it from having a possible in interaction. And the advent of free verse, Williams being an exception, and, uh, uh, and the New American Poets in general being an exception, really uh, also had its protocols for self-expression and voice and finding a voice, which were like the lights and the, also very much like the proscenium stage, so that you were in the audience and you looked at the poet as a voyeur. And a lot of uh, um, dominant uh, American poetry practices and creative writing have to do with creating this kind of, of, of voyeurism uh, where the reader is voyeuristically looking at the experience. So the poet, maybe they have a terrible experience or a beautiful experience or they're looking at, um, at a, a, you, you know, a, the nature in, in, or, or their personal life, but you're still, as a reader, locked on the outside viewing. So the, part of my interest, going back to Stein and Wittgenstein, was to, to break this voyeuristic theater of, of poetry. And Grotowski, uh, the open theater and the living theater, uh, were very... Uh, important to me. And in college, I did uh, theater works. I mean, I, I was not really writing poetry. I wrote some some poetry and edited some things. But the major work that I did when I was in college was uh, doing, doing theater. Um, I did several plays that were different than, but nonetheless influenced by uh, that, that work. And so for me, the issue of performance has always been quite significant. I think this also uh, separates me from some poets, though it connects me to many others, because there is a kind of anti-performative assumption, especially at that time, that the poet would give their own voice to the poems in a kind of a, either a hieratic or higher voice that was deep, or... Uh, in a very introverted, low-key low, low voice. Now, through Penn Sound and other kind of archives, we have scholars who can actually analyze the, the sound files of the poems, which really interests me, and talk about what the poet's voice is, which, you know, some of it has to do with the declining pitch of the... And, and some of it has to do with ministry, I would say the sound of a kind of a Christian minister. I was, I was going to the store, and there I found you. You were standing beside the pickle jar. You go down at the end, and it, it, it's a kind of a monotony, and, but it has a kind of a authenticity uh, to the voice. So I, I was always interested in messing up that authenticity, not as a way, although that's the arto, to push the audience. But that's always an interesting thing, to make it so repellent the audience, uh, and, and also not to become absorbed in the voice, but really to toggle back and forth, perhaps between repellence and absorption, one of my favorite uh, uh, antimonies. Uh, and uh, performing my work has always been an important part. And I, I think of it as performance. I don't think of it as a natural voice. I think of it as... A, as, as, as an acoustic performance that, that um, and I do read in a more theatrical way than a lot of people. So I go, variations in pitch, rhythm, uh, amplitude, so go loud and soft, uh, comic and serious, a kind of a, a, a mix. That's why I've been interested in the sound archive and performance and writing about poetry and performance. So this interest in the theater um, has a great deal of... Um, 
staying power for me, although I don't like most theater uh, then or, or, or now. These are exceptions. But I was very involved uh, especially with Richard Foreman, who I still remain very close to. And his, his work was almost like a poet's theater. That's unfortunately the most important theater work of the last 30 or 40 years, but it was hard to see outside of New York or, or Paris. And the early, early Robert Wilson, too, was, came right out of that, Einstein on the Beach, uh, although it's the opposite of Foreman. And so some, some work in this kind of avant-garde New York theater, but especially Foreman, uh, remained important to me. But, uh, but I'm, by and large, I'm, you know, obviously I moved away from doing theater and, and doing stuff with other people, though it's fun to do things. I've done operas as, as well. Uh, so I think of the performance by voice as like a, it's being a soloist in a way. You're playing the instrument of your voice, not your speaking voice, but what you can perform without music. Verbal language is, is crucial and fundamental. And artwork that relates to human verbal language, which doesn't have the addition of nonverbal sound to it, is uh, something worth focusing on. And then my, my other joke on this point, or having a poem, it's not really a joke, is that if you're interested in having awards, literary awards for singer-songwriters and for pop music, then the pop music industry, like the Grammys, would need to give awards for poetry performance. It, it only goes one way. The commercial industry, would, can you imagine, a Grammy award could never go to Amiri Baraka or to any poetry performer. It would be ludicrous. But where, whereas the literary awards, with their, their bankruptcy, with disinterest and contempt for, for poetry, is, um, you know, can do that. It all goes one way. The commercial always triumphs, and there's no concern that it's commercial. It doesn't mean that commercial is not good. Most people think commercial is all that's good. I'm not against the commercial is as good as poetry. That's not the point. The point is that poetry is derided and marginal and doesn't have a commercial aspect, and that needs to be acknowledged, not that it's better. That, that, that's the problem. They're not a voice for non-commercial culture. They never have been because official literature is always nationalistic and commercial in the end or has some agenda that's beyond it and can't support the precariousness of poetry, which is what's great about it, that it is small, precarious, local, doesn't necessarily uh, export well. Penn Sound is the largest archive of audio recordings of, of, of poets, although, you know, excessively anglophilic, but it's done by people who, who, who speak English. We do have some material from stuff that's not in English. Uh, I think uh, I had been recording uh, poetry readings right from when I started to organize poetry readings. The poetry reading itself is an important site of social exchange as significant as uh, the literary magazine or even the book. Uh, and uh, so I recorded that with very cheap uh, recording equipment, um, and I had all of these cassettes, as did a lot of people. Uh, Al Fillory similarly had this interest in, 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 the, in the recording. So the recording itself suggests an interest in the performance of poetry as being as significant as the writing or the alphabetic text. Perhaps that doesn't seem such a problem now, but in, in, by and large, within a literary criticism, even among poets, the performance is always viewed as secondary and less significant, uh, which are somewhat different things, whereas I, I see it as being 
primary, as with the text, equal, co-equal to the to the to the, the printed text, and the re- performance of the poet reading her his or their a poem is uh, as significant as the books that might be be published. So, I think accent is really an important thing. It's really important. One of the things I mentioned with sound in sound environment is the linguistic environment becoming sonic and being able to be heard, the, the written word as we've had it in poems and in uh, novels uh, is, is stripped of, of, of um, a, a full range of its sonic potential. And that's a great thing about writing. I'm obsessed with writing and the lexical issues that can be involved with scrambling letters around. But still, 26 to 30 characters um, can't possibly give you the sonic range so that they don't allow for tempo, they don't allow for pitch, they don't allow for rhythm, and they don't allow, especially for accent, how you sound and so on. But there's also a great deal of repression that's involved in that, and the whole sound and the way in which the vowels can open up and be kind of wild and uh, have a crunchiness and, uh, you know, is, is there in my head. And it's echoed, even though it, it's only sometimes apparent in recordings of my reading or performances, and it's only sometimes apparent in the the alphabetic work that I I I, I am old old fashioned in that way that I write alphabetic script like most poets have, and and perform it. But the accent sort of remains, and the accent is the most important thing in poetry. I would say the sound and the accent, not the meaning, not the content. And uh, accent also as related not just to vowel sounds and consonant sounds, but uh, to syntax, uh, because syntax is also based on a kind of accent that, that bleeds through and the idea that people need to correct to have some standard. But I'm for you know, making your own uh, uh, accent, for inventing your own um, what I call idiolectical. There's a term in English, um, idio- idiosyncrasy, I-D-I-O. Uh, meaning the oddness of an individual person. But I, I talk about it in respect to this issue of accent as idiolectical, I-D-E-O, related to ideology, because the sound is always connected to ideology. It's always connected to social formation. And uh, uh, it uh, the, the, the choices you make that veer from the standard are not just personal choices or even mistakes or errors. And this is where idiolectical is uh, an important move away from the idea of personal idiosyncrasy or personal mistakes that you make because it embodies a kind of social uh, being that one wants to, that I want to as, 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 as a poet bring into the world, even though it's syncretic, it's, 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 it's made up. Something powerfully absorptive is needed to pull us out of the shit, the ideology in which we slip, mind-altering as the LSD ad used to put it. And poetry does have a mission, to be as powerful as the strongest drug, to offer a vision in sound to compare with the world we know so that we can find the worlds we don't. But we don't, in fact, escape ideology. No other, perhaps not even different, but an alternate point of perspective, a supplemental attentional focus, unfocus, 
Paradise as hell inheres. There are no limits that language cannot reach. Autonomy is jeopardy. I hate artifice, all these contraptions, so many barriers against what otherwise can't be contested, so much seeming sameness in a jello of squirms. Poetry scares me. I mean, it's virtual or ventriloquized anonymity. No protection, no bulwark to accompany its pervasive purposivelessness, its accretive acceleration into what may or may not swell. Eyes demand counting, the nowhere seen, everywhere behaved voicelessness everyone is clawing to get a piece of. Shudder all you want, it won't make it come any faster, last any longer. The pump that cannot be dumped. I had written when I was in college, uh, the last year I was in college, so 1971-72, an uh, undergraduate thesis. And the, the subject of that was reading Gertrude Stein through the lens of Ludwig Wittgenstein. So both Steins, and I called it three Steins inf informally, uh, although uh, the uh, actual title was Three Compositions on Philosophy and Literature. I had studied with Wittgensteinians at, uh, at college, most notably Rogers Albritton and Stanley Cavell. So uh, Wittgenstein was and remained very important to me, and that has a lot to do with uh, the turn toward language that is represented by uh, Wittgenstein, but also uh, others. And I was fascinated with Wittgenstein, as so many people are. But not, not so much the Tractatus, which I find interesting, but really the later Wittgenstein as collected as the Philosophical Investigations. Um, and that was the book that really was fundamental to me. And I, I saw ways that Stein could be understood in terms of the ordinary and also the vernacular, which I don't think was fully acknowledged about Stein. Uh, Stein, of course, is one of the most famous of American writers as a, as a character and as a figure, uh, but at the same time, even now, sort of loathed by the literary establishment, the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker and the New York Times, they still heap abuse against her. It's quite amazing, even in the last few years, because this is an interesting question, again, if you said before, how could something that seems successful nonetheless, but, but she's un unacceptable to some element of mainstream literary culture is represented by those three publications um, in particular. Uh, but at the same time, she's very popular for a number of reasons. People really like her work and read it. But at that time, there was very little written about the relation of Stein to radical American poetry and poetics. And I didn't really know that much about the new American poetry uh, when I was writing it. I certainly knew, knew Ginsburg. Uh, I'd seen him read. But I was more involved with uh, theater. The living theater was very important to me, open theater, um, uh, visual arts of the, of the time, and, uh, and, 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 and music. My, my, my earliest work was not com coming from that direction, although I certainly you know, read the New American Poets with, with great interest. It opened up the possibility for me to uh, speak. When I speak of the New American Poets, it's a convenient term that we use for the so-called beats Allen Ginsberg and uh, William Burroughs. The New York schools, John Ashbery, Barbara Guest, uh, the San Francisco uh, Renaissance, which Robin Blazer, who I met in 73, right at the same time I, I was in touch with Ron I was in, in Vancouver, because I'm in Vancouver, who was the lover of, not excuse me, 
a correction for the first time, though something I didn't understand, who was the close friend and associate of Jack Spicer, whose one of his greatest poems is his uh, translation uh, of the ode to uh, um, of Walt Whitman. So uh, Robin was very close to Spicer and uh, and 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 Duncan, and then uh, and and Whalen. So there was a kind of a Zen a group in there, and and you could add people like Rothenberg and. Very important to me, Jackson McClough, who introduced John Cage-like uh, quasi-intentional. Sometimes people say chance procedures within poetry. I mean that that generation was e- extremely important to me, but I didn't really read them until slightly after this. Just at that time, because uh, I was in touch with Rothenberg right at that point, uh, was was meeting with Robin Blazer in a seminar on Emily Dickinson, uh, and I was very involved with. Thoreau and Emerson through Cavell uh, at at college. So, uh, so the Stein thing is a, you know, it's all a metonymic point. But Stein was certainly fundamental for all of us involved with the magazine. She was not the only f- figure of modernism that we were interested in claiming, but but one of them. And one of the projects of Language Magazine was to to push back against a hegemonic literary history, which was false to American history. To give you an example of what I mean by that with Stein, a lot of times people say, well, Stein is postmodern, and that's what's so interesting, and these postmodernists have picked up, but she's not postmodern, that she is modernism. It's not like you have someone like Stein that you neglect, and then you say, well, she's not from her time, she's later. You have to rewrite your history to understand that that is what modernism is, because if you don't have Stein as a modernist, you know, what comes after makes no sense. It's, she's not writing in the 1960s. <laughs> she's writing, you know, Tender Buttons in the just, just before World War One, along with all, all of her contemporaries. So uh, it's very important to restore, for me, these these figures, this literary history. And that's one of the projects. That's why I got involved in being a professor, was to, uh, to push back against uh, um, the dominant literary historical narratives. I don't want to say wrong because the, the, those are based on the aesthetic preferences, ideological preferences of those people, but they are wrong if they systematically exclude and revile alternative history. So I accept the, the dominant history as one possible history and offer alternatives. And one, so Language Magazine comes partly out of the desire to um, reconnect uh, the modernist generation, not just the generation right before us, but t- t- two generations before, um, and 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 the so-called the first generation modern and and second wave generation modernists, including people like Charles Reznikoff and Louis Zukovsky, as well as some figures who are less known within the new American poetry, especially uh, Larry Eigner and Hannah Wiener. Um, so it reconfigured that history along a very different uh, lines putting forward that work, and as well as creating a space for uh, views about poetry that were inflected by and even infected by the civil rights movement, uh, feminism, and the anti-war movement, not as content only, but as transforming form, but also, as you say before, about, uh, excuse me, there's no you here. I'm just talking by myself without anybody here in the room. Uh, but but also, um, 
was to have styles of essay writing which were were not uh, expository and didn't follow academic or or journalistic or uh, norms of uh, of of clarity uh, or of plot, uh, but that were more open ended, more like poems, more associative, and this was fundamental. To, in my view, to what we tried to do in the magazine, to, to provide this kind of... And there was a relatively small network of people that w- were interested and had any idea what we were doing and, and, and wanted to participate. Uh, and we published those people who wanted to be part of that dialogue. Almost everybody who wanted to be part of the dialogue could. And through that, we're able to discover additional people. And then over decades, many additional people, because it set up a kind of alternate model, but it's a, you know, it's a limited, it, it, it's hard to, I think, in retrospect, when you say how all this may, may be viewed for you here, how, you know, tiny language was. It was done on a typewriter and circulated to a few hundred people, uh, and then uh, we kept reprinting and so on. But I think it, it hit a, 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 a spot because uh, there was nobody else who was really having this kind of uh, perspective, much like the one I'm um, I'm, I'm sharing with you now, but the, in the conversation with the other people, also there were a group of us who were having this conversation, and it really was in no way connected to the university world because there was like was, there was no very well there were I shouldn't say nobody there were a few people of course very supportive within a university context and nothing really at all to do with the literary mainstream what would be reviewed in the nationally circulated publications what would get awards or prizes it was com- completely. D- d- disconnected from it. And so even though I've got, I got this year this wonderful uh, Bollingen Prize, which is the best prize, really. It's the most interesting one in terms of its history and the most prestigious one. So it can't complain because how could you know? It's almost 70, a lifetime achievement. It's great. But still, I've never been nominated, even long-listed for any any other mainstream prize with my many, many books. It, and 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 by and large, almost none of my friends have ever been. It's not just me. There's, there are a couple of exceptions, uh, who are people I like very much. Or maybe one exception, really. Um, but by and large, none of the people involved in the nexus of stuff from language has any connection to that culture. So, it it, it is true that we may, are the dominant in hegemonic poetry in America. It's just that. The hegemonic dominant poetry doesn't recognize us. We're a, <laughs> a rump or hidden or shadow, shadow world. But the shadow world is well known outside of the United States, you know. So that's the funny thing because people can read poems. You can get them. We make them available by and large for free, PDFs, the books circulate. People can read it and people read outside the United States and people interested in American culture and poetry read very differently than inside. So it's hard to understand you know, this very almost like salon style that dominates a certain aspect of uh, of what poetry is. But poetry exists within dominant American culture as not an art form. It's really, and, and there are some wonderful people who fit in and, and are quite successful within that, but as a form of, of subjective cultural expression, which by the way, I'm completely for. I'm all for subjective cultural expression. In a restless world like this is. Not long ago, or maybe I dreamt it, or made it up, or have suddenly lost track of its train in the hocus-pocus of the dissolving days. No, if I bend the turn around the corner, come at it from all three sides at once, or bounce the ball, 
against all manner of bleary-eyed fortune tellers. Well, you can see for yourselves there's nothing up my sleeves, or notice even rocks occasionally break if enough pressure is applied. As far as you go in one direction, all the further you'll have to go on before the way back has become totally indivisible. I, th I think one of the things that Ron Sullivan was very strong about, starting from the mid-'70s, was that the way that work circulated and the politics of its circulation was as meaningful as the content of the poem. So in other words, it wasn't even to say the form of the poem, but actually the, the circulation, the kind of readerships that were developed, the kind of uh, community organization that was um, being created. Although, and Ron himself was a kind of left organizer of the prison movement and editor of Socialist Review, so he certainly had in mind organization. Although the word community, you know, is always, is, the word community is vexed one uh, uh, to me because um, while I don't, I'm not against it, it can have a kind of a romantic tinge to it, and it can, it, it, it can be exclusionary, the concept of community. The, the people who talk to us, or the people who are around, or what the poetry community is, uh, in, in, to some degree you want a, a, a kind of poetry uh, latticework, as Bruce Andrews, the term he liked, connections and um, um, circulations that move outside of existing communities, because existing communities like neighborhoods, I mean, of, you, you know, you can't do, live without them, or families, <laughs> you can't live without them, but you don't necessarily want to put all of your poetic uh, wage, wager on them, because they're, they're, they're elements that are very problematic in any community and a lot of uh, standards that are enforced implicitly and, fa and family, you know, at, at, you know, in a similar way. Um, so, to me, it's interesting to try to create structures within poetry that are fundamentally porous and co and contradictory, uh, uh, that and that don't that they can't be read as 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 closed. Now, this is again something that people outside often view as being, uh, you know, very problematic. Uh, I, I always find the irony within kind of a Cold War liberal democracy is that if you're that to be radically anti-dogmatic, to be against dogma, is viewed as being the most dogmatic position you can have because it's not liberal dogma. So it's an attack on liberal dogma. Therefore, it's it's dogmatic. So if you challenge humanist thinking as dogmatic, then you're tarred as being uh, do dogmatic because you don't accept the the, the terms of liberal uh, uh, Cold War humanist. Um, communication as being absolute. Uh, so the co contradiction is very important. You want to leave space for things not only that you're not thinking about, but contradictions you know, within your own thinking and for people to come in that you don't even know about who can relate to and transform what you're saying. So I've never been for any one particular style or form, but rather, in fact, against the dominance of any one style for communities or large groups of people. So the, in, in, in turn, 
that's viewed as being a style, but it isn't really a style. Historically, we're all condemned to our bodies, or um, I still wouldn't say that what any individual person does, or even what a group does, is any more than the contingent response of that group of people in a particular moment to specific circumstances. It isn't a formula for anybody else. And uh, it needs to be read dialectically. And it also needs to be read dialectically historically and even in terms of identity, gender, um, race. I, I think it's very important to read things through identity, gender, and race. I'm not backing away from that. I'm not, my, my problem with most uh, critical thinking is that the, the identity politics and the historical politics are not robust enough rather than that they're reductive. They're not, it, it's, it's that they, 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 don't, they don't think it through far enough in terms of the d historical determination of, of those things. So I think that uh, the small press, the distribution, distribution of stuff, not-for-profit that was about exchange rather than uh, making any money. By the way, even if you were for-profit in poetry, you wouldn't make it. So you, know, you, ha you have to accept the fact that it's not a profit-making uh, enterprise, but that's an interesting aspect of poetry. Rather than being something bad about poetry, it creates a fundamentally non-commercial space, and you go with that. And that includes bookstores, including commercial bookstores, uh, the presses and the magazines. The poems have meaning in the configurations of the people uh, that they, the poems that they appear with in a magazine, and the significance of the magazine and creating constellations that you read, not the individual poet that transcends it or is outside of it, but exists in a constellation of other people. But that constellation of other people doesn't mean that it, those people are better, that they're a school, that they have it right. It just means that any poem exists within constellations, and that I use the word constellations to avoid ideas like pre-existing uh, communities or identities to allow for a kind of fluidity, but sometimes indeed Things are regional, sometimes things are related to gender in the way that they're grouped, and sometimes they're not. Uh, those are ch choices or, uh, that, that get made or, or, or in, in a way, choices that don't get made that, that happen. But, all, but, but that's still how I would read within this concept of co constellation um, and, and exchange. And so the exchange itself and what's get created in exchange, so it isn't that a poem is a poet is a person sitting outside of society writing deep thoughts about the universe or about their personal history or coming out of the psyche. The poems are generated through exchange with other poets that are published in, in magazines or circulated through readings and people responding to one another, echoing, transgressing, transcribing, uh, transforming uh, those things that are, are heard, and that the conversation about poetry, such as the way I'm talking about now, is neither better or worse than poetry. It's just another form of the discourse that's poetry. So for me, poetry is discourse. It isn't something that's separate or higher than. There's nothing better about poetry than, than talking about poetry. There's nothing better about talking about poetry than doing poetry. There's nothing better about uh, uh, about uh, uh, literary history, or nothing worse about secondary about literary history in the same way 
than about the literature that's being described. These are different writers writing in different modes, and that the valorization of poetry as being somehow better is actually a kind of um, uh, uh, putting down of poetry, negating of poetry. When you say that it's this, you know, um, something special, it, it, it becomes insignificant because it doesn't really participate in the, in, the, in, the, in the struggles and the conversations in the culture, which are significant. So it's a way of uh, uh, making poetry less culturally significant when you say that it has this hieratic or priestly-like uh, quality, which it doesn't have anyway. So, I mean, it's just another piece of writing. But when, when that happens, it seems like it's putting poetry on a pedestal, but actually it's, um, it undermines what poetry's social force is. The only force that poetry has, the only value it has, is as exchange and as uh, in social relationships. So when you remove it from that, you're really uh, uh, de destroying it in, in, in some ways. And I'm not saying, I always add this nowadays, I'm not saying that somebody who uh, has the opposite view of mine about poetry is entirely heretic detests any ideological or social contamination, views their work as outside of history, couldn't write great poems that I would like. But maybe, maybe they could. I wouldn't agree with their conception of what poetry is, but I wouldn't, if that's what that person does, I would say, well, it'd be interesting to think about why a person comes to those views and why I have my views. I'm willing to talk about it. Such a person might not wish to talk about it because it would be they wouldn't deign to talk about it, and that I'm, I would historicize that as well. I wouldn't valorize that attitude, but I wouldn't say that it means that the poetry is not interesting. I mean, I think this, a lot of people talk about this now. I wrote a piece for Critical Inquiry called The Body of the Poem. I think a lot of people with, you know, from my view, horrendous politics who, who, whose political position would not allow me to exist, much less to write, can still write great poetry. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. And I think I attend to that, uh, that work because it helps me to understand that the views that I find most destructive in our world are connected up to, uh, to, to, to the creation of beauty, to, to rhetorical power, to things that galvanize people. Why else would they have had the power they have? Americans, uh, you haven't had that luxury, so this is not for the Spanish audience, although people outside Spain will understand more because you had fascism as the explicit controlling power for so much longer. Um, not that we didn't have a problem with liberal democracy, but still, I mean, they're not the same, and I don't think they're the same as I'm saying about it, and I'm not sympathetic to the Soviet Union or to, to Maoism either, but I, 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 I definitely prefer Western European and U.S. style of uh, democracy, flawed as it is, to fascist and totalitarian systems. I never can understand why people can't live with that thought. I don't think anybody who's in a situation where you can't have a mimeograph machine or uh, would, would imagine that that was possible. But I think that we parody fascism and Nazis as if they're all these kind of stupid people and, uh, or, um, you know, demented. As, and, and therefore, when we see our own super right-wing people, such as the people in the Republican Party, people's representatives, and so on, they don't seem like that. They don't seem like cartoon characters. But actually, fascists produce 
great art that's very powerful. I mean, as it happens, someone like Trump is, isn't like that. He, he isn't, he does, he's not aesthetically uh, powerful, but it's, what, it's what really interesting with Mao. He, not, I would say Mao was a great poet. He certainly was, but Mao was not, certainly, for one thing, he was not an avant-garde poet. He was maybe an avant-garde and destructive um, uh, political person and against tradition, but as a poet, he was a very traditional poet. But he was also a very good poet. And I, this is a very powerful thing about Mao, that he wrote poems that had a kind of majesty and sense of control because he was the man at the top who had to have a, uh, people reading the poems uh, saw him as a person who, um, who was the helmsman of the ship of state and who knew what they were, they were doing. And this myth of the, of the strong man who sometimes has to transcend everyday values but still is guiding the ship through the storm or the hurricane is one of the most destructive metaphors that we have. And it's the basis of what's sometimes called patriarchal masculinism. But I don't think those terms really get at the issue, the, the issue of people who are viewed as outside of history, the men who are uh, the strong, strong men. That's what I'm saying. This, again, I'll soon end the part that the Spanish listeners can can uh, tune back in because you know this. I mean, when you're actually living with with something like this, you, you, you follow what I'm saying. But in the United States, you know, it's much more this parody of, 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 of fascism uh, does not serve us well. Fascism should be viewed as something that is as American as apple pie and tastes just as good. Because otherwise, it makes no sense. Why? why I don't understand why people have, you know, because people want that world. They want that strong man. It's uh, and and poems uh, can express that, and great poems uh, can. I won't even get into issues of religion in relationship to that, but I'll just mention Sigmund Freud, the Viennese inventor of psychoanalysis, um, had this. Um, wonderful essay about watching his niece, um, niece, grand, granddaughter, I can't remember which, Freudian slip, I guess, uh, playing uh, with a ball against the wall, uh, saying here, here, not here, here, not here, and said that it related to the presence or absence of breezy birds and so on. the mother. Sit down and it was a way of coming to terms it. with things no disappearance, this Fort Da effect of, of here, here, not here. And this also associated with the, with the, with the nature of ver verbal tones, language, not written language, cloudy, but breezy, verbal language as spoken, so because we say a cup, but the no cup doesn't have to be here. here. We say cap, but there doesn't have Forget. to be a cap. Uh, but we go there cup, cap, tones. cup, cap, cup, cap. What, what, what happens with that here? here there, here, here, not here. Forget. Now, there, here. here. In fact, the word there and here, here in English is very interesting because if you Forget. take the T off, you have, you know, so there, here, there, here, there, here. here. Uh, moves Forget. from absence to presence. There this this toggling is really, to me, the basis of what poetic rhythm is. So for me, when I'm writing, almost like a this is a very musical analogy. I'm creating various patterns with the toggling of, of presence and absence. But presence also has to do with physical, physical presence, physical, physical. When you when you when you hear the consonants, 
especially the sound is a good one, but you could also do it with away, away, away. It's away, but you you hear it. it it's present. You hear the physical. So you can you can play like an accordion. Um, the, the, the presence and absence so that you can, it's a little bit like what I was saying before about everything being flipped. You, you can't tell the difference, <laughs> the difference between presence and absence. And this I'm different than a lot of people talk about uh, linguistic signs, about making, um, always referring to something that's absent. I'd say almost it's the opposite. The language is always present. Uh, and when it's apparently absent, it's just present in a different way. It's present to a sound. It's, pre it, it's so that you, you're, you're really toggling different levels and echoes of presence and poem and, and absence. So an absent here and a present absence. Is the forget. Think about it. There are simply tones, cloudy, breezy, birds, and so on. Sit down with it. It's time now. There is no more natural sight. Anyway, transform everything, silence, trees, commitment, hope, this thing inside you, flow, this movement of eyes, set of words, all turns, all grains. At night, shift comets, twirling planets, suns, bits of illuminated pumice pointing out in harsher tones, cancers and careers, newer Limoges, please. Pick some value, mood, idea, type, or smell of paper. Iridescent, lackluster, and born in peach vessels. Just think, flutter, and cling with even heavier sweep, unassuaged, which are the things of a form, etc., that inhere. Fair adjustment becomes space between crusts of people, strange, rending, a sound of some importance diffuses as dark red circles digress, reverberate, connect, unhook, your clothes, for example, face, style, radiate mediocrity, we were conceptual poets at least comparable to the pictures generation within the visual arts, but had absolutely, at least I did, the opposite attitude about it. Uh, and 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 I had a lot of problem with a lot of that art uh, because we, I was interested in creating meaning, instantiating meaning, proliferating presence, but not associating presence with this humanist idea of the single voice, but with multiplicity, echo, fracturing. And that constantly puts you uh, within the now as fleeting and transient. Edgar Allan Poe, uh, a great favorite of mine, the, Early, really, I would say that one of the first, if not the first, great American poet talks about brief and fleeting glances. That so he's against didacticism and moralism in poetry and for transience. This issue of transience is really uh, very powerful to me. That you don't, you're not coming from anywhere, you're not going anywhere, but you're allowing uh, for the transience to to become palpable. Um, so like brief, 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 brief encounters or non-productive sexual, non-procreative uh, sexual uh, encounters. It's, it's, it's about the encounter itself, not something that comes out of it or something that's expected uh, before it. Uh, 
Samuel R. Delaney, the wonderful um, writer, has a wonderful, has a great essay on Hart Crane. Go back to Hart Crane about the bridge, his famous book, and song about that. Upon speck, really, uh, ruffling edges, gay pickup. But do not be delighted yet. The distance positively entrances. Take out pad and pen, crystal cups, velvet ashtray, with the gentility of easy movement, evasive, unaccountable, and puffing signs detach, unhinge, beyond weeds, chill, with enthusiastic smile, and new shoes, by a crude rotation, hang, a bulk of person, ascending, embodied. The idea of the presence of the voice being about my making my voice present so that you hear it as a person conveying, but rather a refractory shadow play. But shadow play is really what we're, we're talking about. That's the Fort Da, the, the toggling between presence and absence, which is in which, you know, this is this may be my dyslexia too, because it's like the signifier and the signified. I said, well, which, which is which? I don't, I can never figure out what the signifier and the signified is. I, I think actually that blankness and absence is presence for me, and the presence generally feels absent to me. Now, I say that as an irony, but I actually experience that. I think when people try to be present, like in the theater, that I am here, you're listening to my voice, I, I blank out on that. But when I'm given space, then I can be present with it. So it's not, uh, it's not just to reverse those dynamics. The, abs uh, the presence often does seem kind of aggressively absent to me. And what some people experience is absence, I feel, as a kind of fullness or, or, uh, or presence. So it's a, it's a different view about the, the, the issue of uh, the so-called postmodern or emptying out signifiers. I'm not interested in emptying out. I'm interested in em 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 emptiness as something that we fill when we read or connect with other people. Okay. Well, this is another one from Shade. Uh, or not another one. This is the first poem in Shade that you asked about earlier. Poem. Here. Forget. There are simply tones. Cloudy, breezy, birds, and so on. Sit down with it. It's time now. There is no more natural sight. Anyway, transform everything. Silence, trees, commitment, hope. This thing inside you flow, this movement of eyes, set of words, all turns, all grains. At night, shift comets, twirling planets, suns, bits of illuminated pumice pointing out in harsher tones, cancers and careers. Nur Limoges, please. Pick some value, mood, idea, type, or smell of paper, iridescent, lackluster, and born in peach vessels, just think, flutter and cling, with even heavier sweep, unassuaged, which are the things of a form, etc., that inhere. Fair adjustment becomes space between crusts of people, strange, rending, a sound of some importance diffuses, 
as dark red circles digress, reverberate, connect, unhook. Your clothes, for example, face, style, radiate mediocrity, coyly slipping in how many minutes body and consciousness deflect, flame on flare, missed purpose. Your eyes glaze, thought stumbles, blinded, speck upon speck, ruffling edges. But do not be delighted yet. The distance positively entrances. Take out pad and pen, crystal cups, velvet ashtray, with the gentility of easy movement, evasive, unaccountable and puffing signs detach, unhinge, beyond weeds, chill, with enthusiastic smile, and new shoes, by a crude rotation, hang, a bulk of person, ascending, embodied, I've often talked about the voice, and um, not as against the sound of the of the voice as an instrument in poetry, which is crucial, but against a restriction of the voice to a particular kind of pattern and uh, and plot. I used to say I was against narrative, but I've come around to David Anton's idea that it really is a narrative that's the problem, uh, but but plot, story, a kind of reductive. Uh, progression that doesn't allow for transformation. So I say, not voice, but voices, multiple voices. I hear voices. Hannah Wiener has that uh, wonderful line. In her case, literally, she means it uh, as a clairvoyant. I see, I hear voices, and I see words, but I also hear voices and see words. I think we all do. Um, it isn't just uh, a special poetic state. We hear our parents. We hear political uh, leaders of the time. We hear advertisements, jingles, songs, and that multiplicity of, of voices is what interests me, uh, not reducing it to a single voice, which to me is, is, is a way of repressing the other voices and creating a kind of dominance. And I'm interested in thinking through language which is not dominated in that way but has a, a measure of freedom, and measure being the crucial part, because it's not free either, but it's just a measure allowing for alternatives. So in this sense, I'm interested not in the O-R-A-L, but the A-U-R-A-L. Um, I, I, I use the expression in an essay, A slash orality is another way of putting it, but th with the emphasis on what the ear hears, uh, and, of course, ear and hear itself is a kind of a rhyme, just adding the one letter. And also here, you hear what the ear hears. H-E-R-E -E and H-E-A-R is very important for, for poetry um, because you, the, the, the ear hears the hear. You can't, you can't necessarily get the different spots, but whatever they, they would be in that slippage. So making the hear heard making the herd felt, making the sound emerge in and out of a single voice into multiple voices takes place at the oral level, A-U-R-A-L, -A uh, and, and on the ear. Phenomenologically, when, when you look at um, visual art, 
or any or theater or any anything visual, there's a distance. So when I'm looking at you two, I know I'm, I'm not supposed to be here, but I am actually stare, looking at the, the two of you. You're distant from me, uh, but uh, with the sound, of course, if you close your eyes or you hear the sound, there is no distance with sound. Um, and that's because of the oral dimension of sound. Sound is heard immediately without the distance. So a poetry that can actually bring out that absence of distance rather than trying to put it back in by saying, by talking about yourself and, uh, and, and using the I and, uh, and, and making it into a plot about you, then it distances it. You're listening to a story that that other person is telling. People love storytelling because it's very clearly not them. But I'm interested in actually collapsing the, the, the listener-listened relationship, which is also intrinsic to the quality of sound and to human voice when you're hearing. So this is the first and second section of three or four things I know about him. One, epigraph from Karl Marx. The task of history, once the world beyond the truth has disappeared, is to establish the truth of this world. Two, it's like a living death going to work every day, sort of like being in a tomb to sit in your office, you close the door, there's the typewriter, there's three or four, maybe three hours of work to be done between that nine o'clock and five. Maybe I listen to the news on WBAI if I didn't get it the night before that comes on at nine o'clock. I read the newspaper. I do anything to distract myself. Sometimes I sleep till around 11. I put both feet up on my desk and I put my hand against my head and I close my eyes. The time passes if I listen to the radio. I type a letter, I write an article that would make the article that I wrote for that medical newspaper seem like Proust in comparison. Or sometimes I think initially the job seemed, or sometimes I think initially the job seemed more bearable, more to the point of just a diversion and source of income for a while, until I got unemployment. Not now, but mostly it's just that I'm taking things in a bleaker way. I'm not quite sure why that is. Of course, the writing, writing even talking like this, seems to me perfectly at peace, so that I was thinking, I don't know, this could be my own, you know, this could be sort of the, the source of my crazy hoodness. That the things that are really valuable don't so much happen as you experience them in the actual present. A lot of what I experience is just a tremendous sense of space and vacant space at that sort of like a Stanley Kubrick film, sort of a lot of objects floating separately, which I don't particularly feel do anything for me, give me anything, make me feel good. And when I do feel almost best is when I don't care whether they make me feel good, whether they have any relation to me. That's a very pleasant, that's a real feeling of value in the present moment. 
to just sit and do nothing. And that's what writing is for me a lot, or just sitting. Sometimes when I, I sit in my office with my eyes closed on my chair and let my mind wander, there's a certain sense of not caring, letting it just go by that I like. And then there is actual relationships, you know, sometimes touching, whether it's listening to a piece of music sometimes or talking to somebody a lot, being with certain people sometimes. But a lot of it has to do with memory and remembering that it was, it was something that somehow the value seems to lie historically. I look back and I see things that really do seem worthwhile and worth it. For instance, the way I behave if I try to behave well, decently, or justly, or whatever it is that we take to be what we judge ourselves by when we have a conversation and we say, that's fucked and that's not. Whatever we go by in that sense, I mean, making that happen, building that, it does seem, you know, worth a value, funny, refreshing, nice, wonderful, or a movie, sometimes moments, hours, days, months, and then, you know, even years and lifetimes, sure, but something in the actual experiencing of it that does seem vacant in the way that a lot is vacant, but also the way, yeah, okay, New Mexico is vacant. Really, I'm, you know, completely gone just after working by the different things I've said. Really, you know, really, I'm, you know, completely gone just after working by the time I get to this, but I am able to concentrate and remember the different things I've said so far that seem disconnected. See, I'm sort of condemned to be disconnected and seem disjointed and sort of stupid. But really, I can remember all the different things I've said. I'm sort of, I don't know, it's almost a motif that's a major preoccupation with me, writing the way a relationship is, much the way my relationship with Susan or Kimberly or my job, more than my job, although it creates an enormous number of hassles for me. It's really as bad as you would imagine it would be to work for this mindless healthcare provider bureaucracy. And the reasons why you don't want to work for it is because it's exploitive of you. You are used, your body is used. My writing, and in that sense, it's an unsettling experience for me to have to sit day after day in an office and be exploited. What really bothers me, though, in addition, the rub is the attitude of the other people, that somehow they could do whatever it is they had to during the day. They could be managers, they could be bosses, they could order people around, let the women answer the phone, and criticize me for typing and say I should let the secretaries do all the typing. They could basically serve the large corporation to the best of their ability to serve it and to further its particular interests. This was actually a nonprofit corporation. And then sort of go out at lunch or on the side and on a personal level say to you, 
that they really, who they were at the job, the way they behaved at their job, that was somebody different who went home at night and had liberal values, was critical of what the company was doing, what the job was making them do, that they really weren't what they did at the job. They were somebody else. That the self that went home at night and watched television and went to the movies and went out dancing, socialized, that was the real. That was the real them. And that sort of public self, the job self, was really just a pretense that was necessary to secure a decent living for their families, for themselves, or a chance to have some kind of social power. Here again, that tremendously distorted notion of what a person is. And it's this concept of a person which makes me question the whole sense that we generally have of what a person is. That you can imagine that what you really do socially that the acts you perform are not you. You're really this private thing that doesn't do anything, this sort of neutral gear. Whatever you put that gear into operation, when you put yourself into gear, that's not you. Or that's only you under the condition when you want to say, well, I like that, and so I'll say, well, that is me. But when you're actually doing the things that have some effect, that isn't you. The real you is this personal self. And you even get this situation where you have colleagues or professional work friends as opposed to personal friends. Well, he's a personal friend of mine. This person is simply a job friend. This constant distortion, this constant avoidance that you are what you do, that insofar as the self is anything, it's how it acts in a social situation. What else, what else is a person anyway but a signifier of responsibility for a series of actions? If a self is anything, it is what that self does with its body, does with its mind. And that responsibility is for what you do, not for what you go home at night and think what you'd like to do if, 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 if one day sometime. It creates at the job place this tremendous vacancy of person, this tremendous lack of convict, this tremendous lack of connection with anybody. Because if people don't really think they're them all day long in their suits and shaved faces and their reduced mild language and their reduced middle-of-the-road opinions, which they feel is the safest way, then there's no way to get a connection with anybody. Everything is just so neutralized that you can work in a place for years and years and really feel no, no clicking with anybody else, no contact with anybody there you can go out to lunch at the same time as if with ghosts. There is no escape from what you do. And even if you feel you don't mean what you do, don't mean what you say, don't mean the way you dress, don't mean the kind of business letter language you use, don't mean the division of labor you go along with or that you institute, don't mean the kind of attitudes you have completely, don't mean the kind of attitudes you have competitively toward your co-workers. 
dismissively to the secretaries, that one does mean these things, whether one wants to or not, and that they can be taken to be intentional, to be you, are you, who you are, and they can be read as being you. There's no escape from the nine-to-five self by claiming that the five-to-midnight self or the midnight-to-eight self is not really like this. We become selves just because we do different things. And it's a very hard thing, hard to accept that you are what you're forced to be when you go to work. And not many feel that they want to get behind the products of their job. But we are behind them. And I'm not saying, well, obviously, munitions workers are not responsible for the war, but it's this avoidance of acknowledging the tracks of exploitation. And of course, for the ambitious, for the managers and upper clerks, well, that conjuring trick of projecting a self outside of one's actions is practically a way of life. Toilet paper consciousness should never say should. You are not responsible. You may be white, you may be male, you may be heterosexual, you may be American, you may be working for the government, you may be president, but you are not responsible for anything but your own ass. And if you keep your ass clean to the best of your ability, it's cool, it's groovy, it's okay.